Hello, I'm Neil Ferguson, the Millbank Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, uh, and I chair the Hoover History Working Group, and we have just had the pleasure uh, to uh, listen uh, to my old friend, Sir Paul Tucker, uh, talking about his uh, new book, Global Discord, Values and Power in a Fractured World Order. Uh, Sir Paul's trajectory is an unusual one. For 33 years, he was at the Bank of England, uh, he rose uh, through the ranks to be deputy governor uh, and uh, only late in life uh, turned uh, from central banking uh, to wider questions uh, of uh, government and indeed global governance. Uh, and I wanted to start, uh, Paul, if I may, by asking you what led to that change of direction after such a long time working as a central banker concerned with financial stability, you've written a book which is as much about geopolitics and history as it is about uh, the technical world of, of monetary management and, and financial stability. How did that come about? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me here. It's been really marvelous over the last hour, and I'm looking forward to this. Um, two things, I think, which came together. The first is, um, leaving that former life nine years ago gave me an opportunity to live an alternative life, a life that I may have chosen to live age 22, 23. I contemplated carrying on at Cambridge in philosophy, um, but instead became a central banker. Um, so it's partly that, but it's also partly, and this was true of my previous book, Unelected Power, which was about legitimacy in the domestic state. If you are a senior, very senior policymaker exercising power, in the background all the time are a whole set of assumptions about the decency of the state, legitimacy of the state, international organizations. I chaired two and a half international committees. You, if you do that, with, with effects in the real world, if you do that, you can't but think, what's going on here? What does this cooperation rely on? And among other things, it relies on peaceful coexistence and some norms of coordination and cooperation. And the book is an exploration of that in a period where it's all in jeopardy because of a great rising power. And I should have perhaps said that at that time, while you were deputy governor of the Bank of England, you were director of the Bank for International Settlements, chaired the Basel Committee on Payment and Settlement Systems, and were on the steering committee of the G20 Financial Stability Board. And in those roles, you clearly did see uh, a world uh, of institutions, some of which I think you came to see as being rather siloed. And I wonder if we, we could talk a little bit about that. You, you're now based at Harvard. You've been in the academic world for uh, nearly a, a decade now. Is your argument in this book that the specialists in monetary policy need to spend more time talking to the specialists in national security or, or foreign policy or, or trade policy? Is the critique of our existing system partly just there are silos and that leads to poor strategy? I, I think, yes. I think silos are a product of being able to take all sorts of things for granted, most of all peaceful coexistence. We have lived for decades and decades under an American-European order, which Japan and others joined 
and all of those things could be held in the background and you could get on with your part of public policy. In my case, financial and monetary policy, for somebody else, trade policy, for somebody else, environmental policy. And it's just not like that anymore. Um, everything is in degree a move in the game of geopolitics, partly because so many economic policies can be weaponized, as the expression goes, but not just because of that. I'll give you an example. So in Washington at the moment, the, the periodic game of the debt ceiling is being um, debated, played out. This is hard knuckle game within the beltway, uh, by, played by very sophisticated um, people. But I think they've missed the broader context. And the best way of summing this up is vote default, vote Beijing. That, so, whatever, that whatever gains are reaped domestically, they will be surrendered geopolitically. And that brings me to your four scenarios, that this is a, a book that gives us four possible or plausible futures, lingering status quo, superpower struggle, new cold war, and number four, reshape world order. And I read this and I thought, isn't this obviously new cold war? Why are you not quite convinced by that analogy? Because to me, it just seems we had an interwar period. That was when you were a central banker. And it was between Cold War I and Cold War II. Now we're in Cold War II, and immediately it becomes obvious that geopolitics dominates. Why is it not Cold War II, Quay? Because so far, the decoupling doesn't create um, almost completely separate blocks that can find their way through commercial life um, completely separately compete in the security um, space. I, I do think there is an element of that. Um, proxy wars were a, a feature of the old Cold War. I think Ukraine is best thought of the proxy war. I've thought that since it happened, and I think I may say that in the book. Putin could not have prosecuted the war for so long without at least acquiescence from Beijing. But there isn't anything like a complete decoupling in commerce. There may be, I, am, I have been an advocate of, this is symmetric, but I've been advocate, an advocate of the West reducing its overdependence on unfriendly states. Um, that could plainly spiral out of control and end up with bifurcated economic blocks. But so far, that's not where we are at all. We are still in a world where Western economies and the Chinese economy touch each other in millions of ways in thousands of places every day, if not every second. And that led you to a somewhat less familiar historical analogy, which is uh, the Anglo-French rivalry that extended really from the late 17th century right into the early 19th century. Talk a bit about the implications of that analogy. Clearly, it's not completely decoupled. There clearly were many points of contact, uh, including intellectual points of contact. But what's the, what's the implication of that analogy for our, our world in the 2020s? The, the thing about the British-French struggle from roughly, as you say, 1689 to 1815 or so, is it was everywhere in everything. There were, in terms of everywhere, it was here. One can think of the War of Independence, the Revolutionary War in that context. It was on the coast of India, in Africa, um, in parts of Southeast Asia. It was very much commercial, um, competing, um, constraining. Um, it went on for so long that there were moments of rapprochement, 
trade agreement was reached sometime in the middle of the 18th century. Two countries fell into war again, and that moment wasn't recaptured until the 1860s. But perhaps most of all, it was ideological. And this distinguishes it, I would say, from the standard comparator of the Second German Reich and Britain at the turn of the 20th century. That was for sure the standard problem of rising power and a, a jealous established um, power, but it wasn't terribly ideological. Whereas France and Britain, Britain was ideological. At the beginning of the 18th century, Britain saw France as seeking universalist, absolutist monarchy. And at the end of the 18th century, universalist, revolutionary um, radicalism. And Burke, the Irish, British thinker, writer, parliamentarian, um, said at one point, the problem with, with France isn't its power, it's the wrong kind of power. And that kind of captures how we, a broad we, which includes part of East Asia, think about the People's Republic. The problem is not the Chinese people, it's not Chinese civilization. The party itself and the party's conception of itself um, amounts to a great ideological challenge, which they themselves have articulated in very ideological terms. War lasted about 40 years. Part of the point you're making is that this could last a very much longer time because it, it resembles that Anglo-French rivalry yes. which lasted for more than a century. And I, I found that one of the most interesting points the book makes. Uh, but it also struck me as I was reading it that it is itself a rather 18th century book. You're inspired by the writings of the great Scottish Enlightenment thinkers uh, Adam Smith and, and David Hume, you're writing on a, an enlightenment scale. It's all here, political economy, uh, geopolitics, economics, uh, and not many scholars uh, these days would attempt to be so interdisciplinary. Uh, do you think of yourself as a kind of latter-day uh, philosoph, uh, an heir to the Scottish Enlightenment? An heir to the Scottish Enlightenment in some respects, yes. The book is very much and overtly um, trying to bring David Hume um, to geopolitics and international political theory. Um, Hume is writing in the middle of the 18th century before political economy on the one hand um, and political philosophy on, an, on the other hand have gone their separate ways, which by mill in the middle of the 19th century they basically have. So, so yes, it is, it is, I find more help in 18th century thinkers to help us confront our predicament than I have found in 19th century or many 20th century thinkers. This, of course, is music to my ears, not only because I'm a Scotsman, but because Hume regarded history as being equal uh, to political philosophy. I, I, I have one last question, and that is, does, does that worldview leave you somewhat pessimistic about the West, using that term in its broadest sense, in this protracted struggle uh, with uh, an authoritarian, if not totalitarian, China. I sensed in our discussion when we talked about specific issues like a showdown over Taiwan or the internal legitimacy of institutions in the West that you are somewhat gloomy in your outlook. Am I wrong about that? Um, I want to temper that. I mean, you're not completely wrong. But there, is one, there is one source of, of great hope, if not optimism, which is our system of government is magnificent in one really important way. It separates how we feel about the government of the day 
from how we feel about the system of government. When we felt let down or frustrated by the government of the day, we can vote them out without losing faith in the system. I think China's system of government in that respect is more brittle. I mean, to, to lose faith in the party is to lose faith in the system. And therefore, they don't have the cushion of separating the two, and therefore their performance needs to be, perhaps needs to be relentlessly good, which no one can manage over a sustained period. But what this underlines is, we must have faith in who we manage to become, and we must remember that all systems of government rely on norms and conventions, and ours are forged through our history and are worth holding on to. And people on every side of politics, here in the United States, in Britain, in continental Europe, must remember that. Can't take for granted the system that we managed to achieve. Well, uh, so Paul Tucker, of course, the Bank of England was an important institution in the evolution of those uh, successful uh, norms and institutions in Great Britain. I want to thank you very much uh, for coming and sharing your wisdom uh, with us at the Uber Institution. The book is Global Discord, Values and Power in a Fractured World Order. Uh, it's been a huge pleasure to have uh, Sir Paul Tucker here with us at the Hoover Institution, showing that central bankers can do many things, including history. <laughs> <laughs>